0: Holy Spirit. That's right. If you want to connect with Chad Brewer, pray. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you have to have a vision to find where he is. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your kindness and your love towards us, Father, that uh, you are relentless in your pursuit towards us, even in our weakness and our fumblings and our discouragement. We thank you that you love us and that you loved us while we were yet sinners and you love us while we are yet repentant in all things, Father. We just ask you today, strengthen our hearts, root us and ground us in the love of Christ. We ask you. Amen. All right. So, uh this week is uh definitely the most disruptive week of the entire year. But um I think This week, more than anything else, uh, is the uh, direction and pattern by which the church actually gets rooted and established in the love of God. And uh, more than anything else, the form of the church within which all of its activities, acts of righteousness, all of its functioning happens within is the primary means by which love and truth and righteousness is established within the body and the church. And uh, the perverted form and structure of the church, more than anything else, communicates to people uh, uh, that which is not the love of God, which is tyranny and abuse and uh, and uh, uh, lack of pastoring and care, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So what we really do... Uh, we receive the love of God through relationships and through one another, and it's how we relate that is the primary agent uh, to one another uh, and walk our lives out together, the primary agent by which we uh, receive the love of God and are minister the love of God to one another. And so, so uh, in that light, um, I changed the name of this session because I figure this is what I'm talking about, I might as well just say it, Um, and uh, to sustaining prayer through a house church form. And so like the four pillars, uh, the whole background, the whole context of uh, the pillars is in context to the form of house church um, or home-based assembly fellowship, uh, which we'll work through the, the meaning of that. And then I give you a new uh, diagram, just a little revised, just to reflect that, FYI. So, introduction and review. So, in light of the coming kingdom and the day of the Lord... Uh, The church is called to patient endurance and faith, perseverant war and holiness, and faithful proclamation of Jesus during its time in exile, like we talked about uh, worship, discipleship, and evangelism. These are the activities of this age upon which God has given a stamp of approval. Like he said in Matthew 28, In light of me receiving all authority over the heavens and the earth, go, in preparation for the end of the age, discipling men and women in repentance and faith, etc., producing fruit in keeping with their uh, repentance. First John 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life in the resurrection. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask for. And so the question, of course, like we've talked about, is what is the will of God? And that's determined by what, uh, what he has ordained for this age versus the age to come. And so the will of God for uh, the saints in this age is uh, worship, discipleship, and evangelism and faithfulness, I'm walking that out. B, since the Holy Spirit is the only means of faithfulness in this age, and since God only releases the Spirit when we ask, uh, the church seeks to order itself about the place of prayer individually and corporately. Because prayer is the means of grace uh, in this age, then everything the church does uh, ought to be ordered and designed uh, individually and corporately to to walk in intimacy with God and praying in truth, not uh, just in form. Though this may take different forms and different contexts, this is the essential missiological function of the church in context to the imminent day of the Lord. And so as as Acts 1, Jesus teaches about the kingdom and the day of the Lord, they ask, are you going to do it now? He says it's not for you to know the time or date. It's not now. It will be. But between now and then... Uh, you wait in Jerusalem to receive the Holy Spirit and power from on high that you may be a witness of me from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. See, in light of this, God has graciously given his people many gifts by his Spirit to help them abide in him and remain faithful in their calling in this age. Internal disciplines, external hardships keep us uh, humble. And the various ministries of the Holy Spirit and the powers of the age to come administered uprightly to the body through the fivefold ministry keep us on a narrow path of righteousness. So we talked about last week the whole point of uh, of all the the disciplines inwardly and outwardly, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, signs, wonders, miracles, uh, the gifts of healing, tongues, uh, words of knowledge, wisdom, etc. are administrated through the body, through different callings and giftings of apostleship, uh, uh, prophetic teaching, pastoring, and those specific gifts are administered through people uh, who are uh, gifted in those areas. And the whole point is, under the banner of sojourning, that the body would be kept in faithfulness unto the day of the Lord. Uh, Jude one, but you beloved build yourself up in your most holy faith, pray in the Holy spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. And so you just got the threefold there waiting for the mercy of God to be revealed, worship and faith, snatching others from the fire, evangelism and, and uh, proclamation, repentance, uh, preaching repentance and forgiveness, etc., to others, discipleship, and leading them on a narrow path, uh, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before His presence, before the presence of his glory, with great joy, and the assumption is by means of praying in the Holy Spirit at all times, and so, uh, uh, yeah, to the only God, our Savior, in the in uh, whatever verse, uh, in verse twenty. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forevermore, in reference to the mercy to be revealed to us at the day of the Lord when he executes, takes up his great power, and begins to reign. Point D, however, what is the broad context and form designed to facilitate these various elements and functions within the body of Christ in this age? How ought the body generally relate to one another and to society at large? So, um, here we go. So the modern church broadly relates all of these elements and functions that we talk about generally under a corporate-based model, an institutional model, in which we create a non-human entity, whether it be a non-human entity that the, the kings and governors of this age recognize and give privileges to tax benefits, protection by means of the military, etc., etc., or we create non-human entities as far as ideologies and the creation of an ideology of some sort of movement, like the monastic movement, the mendicant movement, the reformation movement, pietistic movement, missions movement, etc., etc. And so in this idea, we create this non-human entity and then function in relationship and order ourselves around that entity, which specifically expresses itself in that non-human entity owning wealth and power and uh, And corporate holdings, so uh, the apostolic church, however, broadly related itself on a home base or private form of assembly meeting from the from house to house of the the uh, private holdings of the individual members within the church. The reason for this is simple: the home based model of church is most efe- is the most effective means of faithful sojourning, and so the question wasn't. You know, the the fact that they met in homes and did church in homes generally a lot of times it's not even recognized that it happened. People are just so accustomed to corporate based assembly. But when it is recognized, generally there's you know, the explanation is either well, they had no other choice, like the church in China and persecution. They couldn't, which I I, I the persecution in the Roman Empire wasn't that uh, consistent and widespread. It was usually very localized and sporadic in different areas. It was intense in those different areas under specific, you know, lower prefects and governors and rulers within the empire. Sometimes from the emperor himself, making a a wide decree over the whole empire, but generally localized and specific so they they i think they could have they could have pushed for a corporate form of assembly like the synagogue system, but they chose not to so the explanation is usually either they they could they would if they could or they were just ignorant of it, meaning they didn't have the understanding or know how to rent out amphitheaters and and you know. Uh, organize rich people to buy things and shift money, etc. Which obviously that's not articulated, but and is not true. But that is the assumption. Or um, where are the three? They couldn't. They're ignorant. Or they chose it out of wisdom. So that's the third option, which I'm purporting that the early char- the early church chose a home based form of assembly out of wisdom because they recognize that it's the most effective means of faithful sojourning. And in that context, worship, discipleship, and evangelism is most effectively done. Uh, Two, unfortunately, the the recent explosion of house church networks and groups uh, and movements have generally been understood and interpreted under two broad categories. So within a uh, Platonic worldview, you have, again, the Kind of emphasis on salvation and escapism, and so the the house church form and movement is interpreted basically as like kind of escapist mini mission stations, uh, in which it's kind of the station for snatching people out of the fire before immaterial heaven, which of, inter- of all interpretations I appreciate the most. Or the other broad category is emphasizing the sovereignty and God establishing dominion over the earth, which generally, uh, at least in the West, in China and India, it's more the escapist uh, emphasis. In the West, it's more the dominionist emphasis because of the the, uh, new apostolic movement. And so the dominionist movement in which house churches, the form is seen as the means by which God gains a foothold and establishes dominion, and, uh, and power over areas, kind of from a grassroots perspective. So, uh, yet, even with this poor Platonic identity, the house church form has proven a more effective form across the earth. Uh, clearly, though there's abuses because of the distorted identity, it still is vastly more effective, not only in quality, but also in the last five years in quantity, um, which we'll get to in a little bit, and I, I liken it to the analogy of uh, an engine in which you have the, the identity or the message, the theology, is the fuel, and then the ministry, the form, is the actual engine that runs the fuel. And so uh, even within a, a, you know, kind of the modern heavenly destiny or dominionist, corporate-based structure is like a small, you know, weed-eater engine running bad gas. And it just produces the, the, the uh, fruit that we see in the West today. But the house church uh, model and form, even though it may run bad gas, is like a V8 running bad gas and still sputters out, you know, uh, much better fruit generally. But how much more if we run good gas a theology and hope in the resurrection of the kingdom in a solid engine that is conducive to, uh, to running that gas. So three, uh, just as a qualification, entire books, groups, and even movements have been devoted to the subject of the form and, and structure of the church. And I understand, I understand why there's such, people get so zealous about it, because it really is important. I mean the whole thing can kind of be disqualified when uh when the whole grasp and goal begin be, becomes getting more property and wealth and power in the equation and your heart follows where your feet lead where your treasure is there your heart will be also so I understand the emphasis on it but the relative emphasis in the scripture is much more on personal piety and righteousness and faithful sojourning at an individual level because if you heal the body at the cellular level, it will function healthy at the, at the whole level of the body. And so the emphasis in the scriptures is, is on the individual and in the cell because if you can cleanse it from the inside and the individual as a widespread movement, then it will function Uh, in a much more clean and healthy way. An example that comes to mind is like the Jesus Movement, where you just had a widespread movement of uh, young people in the 70s based out of the West Coast and outward from there of just a movement of young people giving their lives wholly and consecrating themselves for the Lord and not the things of this age, and you just had a cleanness about it as a whole, as a movement. Then you had a number of apostolic figures come in and try to organize it and led to destruction, but uh, but in its early stages it was beautiful and clean. Um, so likewise, this class, uh, I'm, I'm zealous about a, a uh, home-based form, But I'm only going to devote one session to it. And so it's a little bit strategic because I just want to impress that on you guys that um, don't get overly zealous about uh, the home-based model, but have a seriousness about it and devote yourself to it, or I I would encourage you to. So uh, I put down on the bottom a quote by William Law, that I found that I felt like was applicable in the situation, and I love William um, just because of he's a real unique man. Uh, his situation was very complex in uh, England in the early 18th century, and he, you know, he, he wrote a book called a, a serious and what is it? A serious call to a devout and holy life. And William's really enigmatic because he you can't label the guy. He wasn't a Puritan, and he wasn't a revivalist, which are the two main movements at the time, and he wasn't a kind of Anglican papist. He wasn't aligned with the Anglican church, and so there's three kind of factions pressing on and rubbing on each other in England at the time, and he kind of countered all three of them. And had a large impact on John and Charles Wesley. Would meet with him often, and he discipled Edward. He was a tutor in the Gibbon household for many years. Discipled Edward Gibbon's uh, father, the historian, and uh, and before he retired to his kind of family estate and lived as a celibate the rest of his life. Um, but he wrote this book, and uh, he says, "I just quote in the middle of it." He starts the whole. Uh, emphasis on the book that what is devotion devotion to God is not public or private prayer and so he's referencing kind of the uh, he's referencing kind of the Puritan prayer and meetings publicly twenty four seven emphasis or the private kind of pietist, German pietist that had, and revivalist movement that had come in and private meetings, and it's all about communion and intimacy with God. He says, no, devotion to God is when prayer consumes your entire life, and everything you do in life is in the place of prayer, whether public or private. And, uh, and so he goes on just to emphasize the point countering kind of the the Puritanist mindset on how the emphasis in the Scriptures is not on prayer and uh, corporate prayer and, and public meetings. So he says it's very observable that there is not one command in all of go- all of the gospel for public worship, and perhaps it is a duty that is at least insisted upon in Scripture of any other. The frequent attendance at it is never so much as mentioned in all the New Testament, which I don't know if I would say that there are a number of uh, a few scriptures that really emphasize not uh, giving up assembling together and praying together whereas and examples in the in the book of acts so i think he overstates it a little bit but you get the point whereas the religion or devotion which is to govern the ordinary actions of our life is to be found in almost every verse of scripture our blessed savior and as apostles are wholly taken up in doctrines that relate to common life They call us to renounce the world and differ in every temper and way of life from the spirit and the way of the world, to renounce all its goods, to fear none of its evils, to to reject its joys, to have no value for its happiness, to be as newborn babes that are born into a new state of things, to live as pilgrims in spiritual watching, in holy fear, a heavenly aspiring after another life, to take up our, our daily cross, to deny ourselves. To profess the blessedness of mourning, to seek the blessedness of poverty of spirit, to forsake the pride and vanity of riches, to take no thought for the morrow, to live in the profoundest state of humility, to rejoice in worldly sufferings, to reject the lust of the flesh, to l- the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, to bear injuries, to forgive and bless our enemies, to love mankind as God loves them, to give up, to give up our whole hearts and affections to God, to strive to enter through this, the straight gate into a life. Of eternal glory. This is the common devotion which our blessed Savior taught, in order to make it the common life of all Christians. How intense is that? I mean, he just pounds all the emphases of of uh, of the Sermon on the Mount expounded through uh, uh, through the rest of Scripture. Um it is not it is it is not therefore exceedingly strange that people should place so much piety in the attendance upon public worship concerning which there is not one precept of our lords to be found and yet neglect these common duties of our ordinary life which are commanded in every page of the gospel i call these duties the devotion of our common life because if they are to be practiced they must be made part of our common life and they have no and they can have no place anywhere else and so uh we'll get to we'll get to uh a uh, a book by neil cole and i uh the first time i read it i didn't really appreciate it a number of years ago when it first came out but i just read through it again recently and i'm uh, i'm fairly taken with it even though it's got a Kingdom now uh, theology and, and fuel so to say, but uh, there's such cleanness to it. He doesn't have a chip on his shoulders on his shoulder, uh, and he's just driven by the love of God. And the name of the book is Organic Church: Growing Faith Where Life Happens. And he's just got such an emphasis of uh, of establishing church and common life and uh, and righteousness and holiness. Anyway, okay, so, page three, the temple, the church, and the cathagogue. So whenever you have discussion about the form of the church, the problem is is you always end up with this mixture of what the form of the church should be based on the book of Acts versus Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and uh, the form of the church. So... Just to clarify some of those, point one, the form of the uh, post-Constantinian church has been generally based on the pattern of the Old Testament temple, with the corporate holdings, sacred articles and space, professional clergy, etc. Moreover, the liturgical patterns of the church were generally adopted from the liturgical patterns of the Jewish synagogues, which were kind of an adaptation of the temple rituals. This created what uh, Wolfgang Simpson calls the cathagogue system, and so I, I like this quote just because it's it's a little intense. But it, it emphasizes the idea that once this system was really established as the norm in the Constantinian Empire, then after that, it there's really it's just a history of kind of feeble attempts to reform that thing. So he says, baptized with Greek pagan philosophy, separating the sacred from the secular, the cathagogue system developed into the black hole of Christianity, swallowing most of its society, transforming energies, and inducing the church to become absorbed with itself for centuries to come. The Roman Catholic Church went on to canonize the system, Luther reformed the content of the gospel, but left the outer forms of church remarkably untouched. The free churches freed the system from the state. The Baptists then baptized it. The Quakers dry-cleaned it. The Salvation Army put it in uniform. The Pentecostals anointed it, and the Charismatics renewed it. But until today, no, nobody has really changed the system. The time to do that has now arrived. And so regardless of the stream or... <laughs> it's a funny quote. Regardless of the stream in history... The and the generally the theological reformation that gets pushed the form the ministry uh, really changes very little, and the divisions that happen are usually over small tweaks in theology and small tweaks in form and uh, and things we do the color of our robes and what kind of instruments we use and things that are so utterly superfluous to when we stand before God and, and uh, give an account for our lives. Two, the temple was instituted by God in the pattern of the heavenly temple. It was designed as a prophetic signpost of the day of the Lord, when the glory of God will cover the whole earth. Thus, the glory filling the inner sanctuary was seen as a deposit of the glory to come. So the nature and, and purpose and form of the temple in the, in the Old Testament, like we've talked about, was simply in the form of the, the temple in the height of the heavens that God dwells in. And therefore, he was establishing that pattern on the earth as a signpost that he would restore the earth to the way it was in the beginning, on earth as it is in heaven, like it was with Adam. And uh, which I didn't really address, and, and I'm getting kind of a clearer picture in the theology class on the idea of replication That um, And there's a number of theologians that are increasingly recognizing that the Hebrew worldview was one of replication where what was in heaven was established upon the earth with Adam and that you had a garden, a paradise in heaven, and a heavenly temple in which that was established on earth with gardens, rivers, trees, etc. And you had this idea of replication on the two, and, uh, and that that was the, the uh, purpose of of the temple and God will restore that perfect replicated order in the age to come. Of course, they kind of implicitly condescend towards that view and just say, well, this was kind of the ignorant Hebrew worldview, but, but uh, it helps in their explanation of, of how they interpret the Old Testament. Anyway, so 1 Kings 8 when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple with glory. The glory of the Lord filled the temple when Solomon then Solomon said, "The Lord has said he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever." And so when they saw the glory of God fill the temple, he said that this that's how they understood it that this was a deposit of the day of the Lord. And that he would dwell in this temple forever and ever. And so, in in the in the parallel version in First Chronicles, it says it doesn't. It says that when the glory filled the temple, all the people bowed down and worshipped and said, "Uh, what did they say? What's the refrain? The Lord is good; His love endures forever." or uh and the the idea was his covenant faithfulness, his his loyalty to the covenants expre- expressing his love, meaning that when the glory filled the temple, it was a guarantee that he will fulfill the covenants and uh, and the day of the Lord will come. Um, page four Isaiah forty likewise uh, it's expressed in the prophetical writings, declared to Jerusalem. Comfort my people, comfort them. Declare to Jerusalem and to Zion her many sins uh, are uh, atoned for. In the desert prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. And the glory of the Lord, he'll bring down the mountains, raise up the valleys, rewarding the righteous, punishing the wicked. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so you have... Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord saying the glory of the Lord will be revealed to all mankind for the Lord the voice has spoken and he says I heard a voice the Lord spoke to me and said cry out I said what he said all men are like grass after they've fallen and they will be held accountable they they I am absolutely sovereign over redemptive history the glory of the Lord will be established. Get up on a high mountain, the voice said to me, and declare to Jerusalem, comfort Jerusalem, saying, The day of the Lord will come. The Lord will come, and he will give each man according to, uh, give each man uh, his recompense. The Lord will come, uh, whatever. <laughs> but the point is, is the context of the, the declaration is to Jerusalem and the temple there. And so the point is, I promise you, Jerusalem... And the temple, that there's a deposit there, that the glory of the Lord will fill the entire earth. And so that's how they viewed Jerusalem and the temple. Bumbled through that one. Three, as such, the perpetuity of the name and presence of God was interpreted in light of the age to come, just as the perpetuity of the Davidic dynasty. As the Davidic dynasty came to a temporal. Uh, temporary end. So also the temple came to a temporary end in the exile and under uh, the Roman crushing. However, both the temple and the dynasty will be perpetually restored in the age to come. So when he says to David, your seed, I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for me and his kingdom will endure forever. And so Solomon Even though the Davidic dynasty came to to an end and the temple came to an end, the the interpretation of the covenant as forever was in light of after the day of the Lord when when everlasting life and eternity and righteousness would be established on the earth. And so the same way that the Davidic covenant was interpreted in light of the day of the Lord and the seed was not... uh, talking specifically about Solomon, though Solomon was a d- deposit and a sign of the seed that would come forth from the Davidic dynasty, so also was a temple, and that the seed would come forth and the arm of the Lord would descend and rule for the Lord, and likewise, he would build a house from the Lord and establish the temple in the age to come, and he would rule from that temple, and the glory of God would cover the entire earth. Um, so like Psalm 132, the Lord has chosen Zion, and so the two are generally related together. Like, in, uh, like in, the, uh, in, uh, in the Davidic covenant, the temple and the Davidic dynasty are bound together in one. So also like in Psalm 89, Psalm 130, uh, 132, they're bound together, uh, uh, the two together. The Lord has chosen Zion, he's desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned for I have desired it. And so it's viewed that the temple was the resting place for the Lord where his name dwells forever. Ezekiel 43 then the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. When the man was sitting beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever, which is always the, the, uh, the language for the temporal temple as a deposit where the, name, where the Lord will dwell forever and his name will uh, be established forever. For, in this way, the temple was never meant as a pattern for ministry. But rather a signpost for the age to come. The disciples never attempted to replicate the temple ministry or form, because to replicate it would not only be illogical but blasphemous, like Jeroboam did, where he established one at whatever, Dan and Bethel, and said uh, and told the Israelites, don't go down to Jerusalem to worship and make sacrifices, but go to here. And his desire was uh, to maintain uh, power and control. And so, uh, three, thus the the locus of sojourning ministry in the New Testament for the church was from home to home, though the disciples continued to meet in the temple courts. The temple was never discounted, replaced, or superseded. It was simply related to rightly in light of the day of the Lord. The locus of ministry and sojourning has always been home-based, Old Testament and New. And so it's not like anything changed from Old Testament to New because the identity of the Israelites and and specifically the assembly of the saints within Israel and then also the assembly of the saints that includes Jew and Gentile in the New Testament has was always an identity of sojourning before the day of the Lord. And so all of the commands of the mosaic law were 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 the majority of commands in the mosaic law emphasized righteous sojourning based in the homes and family life of the israelites and then the temple ministry was independent of that a unique ministry as a signpost of the age to come and so likewise the disciples like in luke 24 after jesus is taken up they continued to meet in the temple uh, uh, in a regular basis, showing their allegiance to the temple that God has sta- had established as a signpost uh, for the age to come. Acts two two 2.46, uh, every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, communion as, uh, in remembrance of uh, the cross before the kingdom comes and then right after that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer and so and Paul likewise goes back to Jerusalem and engages in uh in the rituals of the temple not because he didn't believe in it anymore but in truth because he did uh there wasn't uh falsehood in what he was doing what are acts 21 Acts five day after day in the temple courts and from house to house they never stopped teaching proclaiming uh, the good news of of Jesus and so Deuteronomy six which is the you know the great commandment the Shema. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. These commands I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. buy them on your foreheads. Write them on door, door frames of your houses and your gates. So again, the emphasis is always on the home life as the locus of sojourning and, uh, and ministry. The confusion comes in when the church is uh is uh related analogously to the temple. And so this is where the difficulty comes in. But if you view the the uh the church and the saints their home life and the temple having the same function, The purpose of the temple is a deposit of the glory of God at the day of the Lord, and the purpose of the saints relating together in righteousness, based out of the family home, the purpose is the same, the function's the same, faithful sojourning, but the form is different and unique. And so... um, so, when the New Testament makes analogy between the church and the temple, there's the, the analogy they're making is in function, not in form or ministry. Does that make sense? So, um, but then when the confusion happens is when we mix the two forms and therefore confuse uh, We mix the two forms based on a different theology and function, a Platonic theology and function, and equate the two forms under a new uh, uh, function and purpose. Um, 2 Corinthians 6, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I'll be their God, they'll be my people. Ephesians 2 uh, the church is, is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. In Him, the whole building is joined together, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you're being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. And again, there's not contradiction between the temple and the church. There's uh, analogy in that the Spirit filled the inner, inner court of the temple and the Spirit has filled us in our inner man, both as a deposit of the day of the Lord and the age to come, therefore both serving in an in a analogous function. But never is there an assumption in these passages, like 1 Peter 2, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, chosen by God, precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house and a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Live your lives so uprightly among the Gentiles that they may praise him on the day he comes to judge. And so the whole point is he's making an analogy between the temple and the church, and they're both to point to the day of the Lord, but never is there an assumption in any of these passages that we ought to replicate the form and ministry of the temple. And so generally the way these passages get interpreted is in a replacement idea that The church has now superseded the temple, and therefore all that form of temple practice is illegitimate and done away with, and we function in a spiritual ministry of the spiritual temple. But then there's kind of mixture and confusion between the two in which we kind of incorporate some of the form and the, the, quote, physical form of the temple with the spiritual form of the superseded temple you see what i'm saying when the two forms and ministries are completely independent of each other they have the same purpose but the two forms and ministries are mutually exclusive though not contradictory so of course the disciples continue to meet in the temple but also break bread from home to home does that make sense and so likewise, like in Acts 8, I've heard a lot of missiologists argue that Acts 8 was the great fall of the apostolic ministry when the persecution breaks out and all the, all the disciples in Jerusalem are scattered through Judea and Samaria, and the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And everybody argues, oh, you know, that was when... Jesus gave the command to go to the ends of the earth and the apostles didn't listen and they were the stubborn, obstinate ones and God had to push them out of Jerusalem by persecution, which isn't the case at all. The point is the persecution broke out and the apostles, uh, not because they were centralizing power and uh, of the movement, but because they were remaining faithful to the locus of God's Redemptive plan in history in Jerusalem with the temple. And so the fact that the apostles remained in Jerusalem and didn't leave. They didn't leave because the Lord had not sent them out directly by the Holy Spirit, like in Acts 13. And so they remained in Jerusalem next to the temple because of allegiance to Jesus will come down just like he came up. And he's going to come down to the Mount of Olives, walk into Jerusalem, into the temple, and set up the throne that will last forever. Does that make sense? And so there wasn't like they weren't ignorant in what they were doing and enduring persecution rather than flir- rather than fleeing. All right. So uh, B, a brief history of church and home-based fellowships. Because of the early church sojourning theology and lie of the kingdom and resurrection, early Christians lived in organic, easily multipliable house churches, equipped and guided by the fivefold ministry. As some have said, converts were converted to marginality, which had no place in mainstream uh, wealth or power. They chose to function the way they did. The early church had no corporate holdings. There was no church buildings mentioned in the history, in history until the final quarter of the third century. And so that basic fact really is, you know, it's kind of the same, that idea is the same as, uh, as in the th- idea in theology that there was no other eschatology for at least the first 200 years. And so that basic fact should make us fall out of our chairs, figure out what their eschatology and theology was, what was giving them context for their mission, and likewise, the fact that they had, they walked out that mission with a form with no corporate holdings or buildings ought to make us just completely chuck all of the theology that's contradictory to apostolic theology, and likewise chuck all of the forms that are contradictory to the early church form of, of ministry. The problem is that that is so radically radical and flies in the face of so much agenda for wealth and power that whenever it happens, it's not just opposed. It's crushed with violence. Um, so uh, I, I like the idea. I've heard a number of times of various missiologists who have said, if the early church had a form and structure, a church planning strategy that didn't involve a building for the first 300 years, we ought to adopt a church planning missions evangelism strategy and form that doesn't involve buildings. The first phase of building ought to be after 300 years. Obviously, after 300 years, we would learn to function without buildings, which I think would be a whole lot better in the first place. Um, an infamous quote uh, by kind of a little known guy, a little known guy, Ernest uh, Losley, when the church was very young, it had no buildings. Let us begin with that striking fact that the church had no buildings is the most noticeable of the points of difference between the church of the early days and the church of today in the minds of most people today, church means first a building, probably something else second, but seldom does the church stand for anything other than a building. Yet here is the fact that we uh, with which we start the early church possessed no buildings, carried on its work for a great many years without erecting any. This fact had something significant to teach us concerning the character of the church. There is practically nothing in the way of church building until the 3rd century and nothing with any pretension to architecture until after the conversion of Constantine early in the 4th century. During all this time, the church carried on her mission without buildings of her own, without property, without the burdens and responsibilities that the holding of property implies. Point three, it wasn't until Constantine... <clears throat> that the church wholeheartedly adopted corporate holdings endorsed by the states by the state as the church systematically transitioned to an institutional corporate base the war against gnosticism subsided and the Ro- romanized church assumed the identity of the uh they assumed the identity of the kingdom now before an immaterial heaven I.e., for whoever yeah, so again, when you when you uh start working through church history, which you which I didn't teach the which I didn't teach the church history class this year, so you guys don't really appreciate my love and zeal for church history. But when you start to look at church history through the glasses that the apostolic church understood theology and they understood how to walk that theology out and do church, then you start looking at church history in a different light, in a light of continual reformation and broken theology and practice in which there's a constant press by those who are righteous in their inner man to search out truth and reform theology, but then also to search out truth and reform uh, practice. And there's a most church history kind of bumbles around and, and documents some of the reformation of theology, though it's kinda of like not really. There's not a lot of church histories that emphasize reformation of premillennialism, though that is a constant theme throughout renewal movements. Almost most renewal movements emphasize the imminent return of Jesus uh, uh, to the earth and premillennialism in v- in various forms. But then also those renewal movements generally end up pressing towards a uh, movement away from corporate holdings. And over and over with the monastic movements, the mendicant movements, you know, you get kind of the extremes with the Franciscans where they're just like... No possessions at all. There can be no possessions at all. Just go wandering preachers. Don't own anything. And then the movement gets rolling and all the monks gather together and big wealthy people start making big donations and they run into corporate holdings and then they kick St. Francis out and he (laughs) wanders the next 10 years of his life and dies in the wilderness. I mean, literally, this is how... Generally, movements happen and the corporate form is fought against and then succumbed to over and over. Um, So in time, the logical consequence of kingdom now theology and praxis led to the banning of everything outside of the corporate uh, base assembly. On February 27, 380, Theodosius published the Edict of uh, Thessalonica, which not only outlawed traditional Roman religions, because that's what generally gets emphasized, is that that's when Christianity became the official religion. You couldn't practice anything else. What what really, the way that should be interpreted is the edict was that nobody can assemble outside of the state-sponsored churches. And so likewise home-based uh, groups that didn't a- assemble outside the corporate holdings were persecuted just as heavily as the uh, non-Christian uh, assemblies. And so the first major persecution that happened was uh, known as the Priscillian movement. And uh, Priscillian uh, uh, was a very zealous very righteous man uh, from Spain that led a movement through Spain and Gaul, France at the time of home based fellowships pressing on them to uh, to live in righteousness and But the problem which always happens is there 's the implicit accusation against those who are striving after wealth and power and living in unrighteousness in this age and so the opposition quickly arose and backlash quickly came upon him and all of his followers. And the movement really lasted uh, t- almost two centuries in the area and was finally crushed. And uh, of course, like all the other movements, they were accused of Gnosticism. And, and granted, there was, there was aspects of Gnostic thought in the theology, but you gotta—the way it happens with these various movements is because you have quote orthodox the- teaching that is embodied in a corrupt form. The people who want to walk in righteousness press for a mystical teaching that is maybe a little different from the quote orthodox teaching. And but the problem is the orthodox teaching is kind of is compromised gnosticism, and so they press farther away into more Gnosticism and press for a, a, a different form. And, I, and it, it, so I understand that there's confusion in, in the mix and, and sometimes the equation doesn't work out. But in the reality of most of these guys and movements, most of them were really uh, set on asceticism and righteousness and, and living like the Albigensians as the kind of case in point the the reason they were so offensive is because they called people to such high asceticism because they really wanted to walk in righteousness obviously the, there was different motives all mixed in and such but the general rule was that these sects wanted to walk in uh I'm going too deep into uh arguing various uh specifics uh, so move on okay um Likewise, the Celtic movement, so if you study the Celtic monastic movement uh, it's kind of another case study luckily the the Irish movement was kind of uh, uh Restricted to that little island way off that nobody cared about, which is why the Germanic tribes never destroyed the church in Ireland because they didn't care about that island way out there. And then you have, you know, books written like How the Irish Saved Civilization because you had the missions movement come out of Ireland through England back into Central Europe. And so, but you have for about 150 years there a real uh, which started as a kind of undercurrent clash between the Church of Rome and the Irish Church based out of the base of, uh, various monastic centers in Ireland and the, the authority being based in the abbot versus the authority being based in the bishops. And it was as the Irish uh, movement moved into England that you started having the clash between the Irish Church in the north and the Roman Church in the south of England and was finally, you know, they compromised in, in the Synod of Whitby. Anyway, see, the uh, Armenian uh, Policians and Tondrakians, the Bogomilians of Bulgaria, the French Henricians, and Albigensians were all accused of heresy, but I would argue that the real reason that they were persecuted so heavily is because they chose to get together and collect the tithe independent of the uh, Roman Church. And because of that, that was the real source of their persecution, um, that they uh, did communion and collected the tithe uh, independently, so they threatened the wealth and power of the state church. The rise of the Inquisition in the 12th century led to the persecution and murder of millions of believers including the Waldensians. So if you ever study the Waldensians, the poor men of lions uh, uh, who followed Peter Waldo, there's almost no difference in the life of Peter Waldo and St. Francis of Assisi. It's just that Peter didn't receive the blessing of the Pope to start a new special order within the church, and St. Francis did, the message of the both of them, the sacrificing of family and, and cutting ties with family in a radical way is similar with both of them, and initial persecution is similar with, with the two guys, except that Francis sought the blessing of the Pope and, and Peter didn't, and Peter came under in the fury of, uh, of the Inquisition. And the Inquisition had just been formed in context to the the uh, recent Albigensian, the Cathars movement. Uh, the English Lollards, which obviously the Lollards, the, the movement that John Wycliffe started, was not unorthodox in any way, shape, or form, but still they were charged with heresy. The Bohemian Hussites, John Huss, who was burned at the stake in 1415, the same way the Moriscos, the, the Islamic converts, and then the Moranos, the, the, uh, the, the Jewish converts in, in Spain and Portugal, were uh, systematically executed, uh, not because they were heretics, though they were charged of it, but uh, because they defied uh, the uh, Roman church and the state. And then likewise, the Protestant Anabaptists, the the Labadeans, the Huguenots, etc. And I would argue that the real reason for the massacring of the Anabaptists and the Huguenots was because they met outside of of the corporate form. So, lest we think, let's pick up in the era of uh, Protestantism, Um, lest we think it's just a Catholic problem, the Protestant Reformation did so little to reform the form of the church. Even though Luther, in the beginning, when you study Luther's life, you know, he has his intense wranglings internally you know, through the early 1500s. He comes on staff at Wittenberg. He becomes dean of theology. He starts having you know, intense zeal on, we're made righteous by faith not by indulgences and starts you know it starts like tearing him up on the inside all the students are like yeah (laughs) you know and there's kind of like this swirl that's happening and he posts the 95 thesis kind of in your face on on the wittenberg church and it starts to kind of unravel and get crazy and he's called in before you know various levels into various uh meetings and then you know kind of comes to a culmination of the diet of worms and in 1521 after he wrote his main three articles in 1520 calling for the you know calling the roman church the babylon harlot etc and he's called in and and the popes the cardinals like don't you know if you continue on this path everybody's going to say by scripture alone and my interpretation of it and you're going to have so many splinters and factions and he's like i have nowhere else to stand you know and then and then the persecution really starts, and he has to go into hiding into into Frederick III's uh, castle, wherever the castle was. I haven't studied Luther's life in a while, but he goes into hiding and and you know works on the German translation of the scriptures. And then he you know 15, 25, There's this movement of people, grassroots movement that are like that's right, those wicked, you know, and they'd, they'd start this kind of grassroots revolt against the wicked Catholic rulers and powers. And uh, by that time, Luther kind of had to make a decision on who he was going to support in the situation, and he made the decision to side with with uh, the the German prince that he had buddied up with, and so 100,000 peasants got massacred, in fifteen twenty-four and twenty-five, and then fifteen twenty-six happens, and he starts writing out and organizing and networking the various pastors and leaders within his movement under the protection of the German prince. And from sixteen, fifteen twenty-six to fifteen twenty-nine were the most pivotal years that determined so much of the rest of uh, the history of the church. And because before 1526, in in various parts of his writings, you'll see him press that you know I think we should we should not only reform theology, but we should also reform how we meet together. And maybe we don't need all these these uh, uh, big buildings and, and corporate holdings. And then 1526, he really starts to lay out the polity and and structure of of the movement, and. Turns completely away from that, and so by fifteen twenty nine he you know the movement is really kind of gaining steam and and he's gathered a bunch of the princes under you know uh, under his wing, and the princes all gather together in protest and that 's why it was became known as the Protestant movement because all of these princes that protest against the uh, Catholic kings and then you had you know the whatever the piece of what was it Augsburg in 1530? No, Augsburg was uh, in uh, 55. Whatever the the uh, confession they signed in 1530 that kind of, you know, stabilized the the Catholic versus Lutheran movements. And then it's all history from there. One of the interesting movements is uh, a guy named Caspar uh, uh, Schwenkfeld. And Casper was a disciple of Luther and met with him uh, often and uh was really one of his uh uh main preachers and and Casper would write letters to various uh groups and preachers in different areas and was kind of representative of Luther. And then in that time period between 26 and 29, he started to get like really alarmed and say, I don't think this is the way we want to go. And then in 1530, he officially said, I can't do this anymore and left. By 35, he was uh, officially branded a heretic with all of his followers. And uh, as uh, uh, one church historian uh, says that they were hunted like deer throughout Europe And for whatever, he died in, I think, 61. But for 30 years, the man ran. He was continually, and all of his disciples, hiding, living in forests, living in caves, living in homes. And they were just continually hunted all throughout Europe. It's just a bizarre story. Uh, likewise, the leaders of the Anabaptist movement, Grebel, Mons, and Blaurock, were all sentenced in Zurich at the hands of who, Zwingli. And uh, and at first, these guys were you know they were all on board together. they were leading Bible studies together, studying the ancient Greek in their home studies. You know, just laymen. This was kind of the atmosphere of the Renaissance. And uh, but then you know they started pressing. No, we need to reform the the structure and the traditions and we need to actually start baptizing people like they did in the new testament taking communion in our homes and you know and and uh and all of this was like you know ulrich was kind of in the middle of this going huh? uh you know i got the guys with power over here and in the inquisition that could cut my head off or we got these guys over here <laughs> and he kind of gravitated toward uh toward the uh toward the right in the situation and so uh after they were sentenced uh mons became the first anabaptist martyr uh and was drowned they they invoked the uh the ancient roman uh Catholic laws against him uh who was a Blarock, was beaten, and, uh, or uh, Grable died, not in prison, but because of his long prison sentence, he got out and then subsequently died. Blaurock was beaten, sent away, and later burned at the stake in Italy. Known as the Radical Reformation, the Anabaptist movement spread like wildfire throughout Europe as people sought not only to, to reform the theology, but also the praxis, the latter being the true source of uh, their relentless persecution not only at the hands of the Catholics, but uh, uh, some estimate that uh, uh, a much greater percentage, it's hard to estimate how many uh, Anabaptist martyrs there were, but some estimate there is a far greater uh, percentage in the Protestant territories rather than the Catholic territories. Likewise, dictatorial rule was established in Geneva under John Calvin and his successors, Beza and the, and, uh, and the others. Any meetings outside the church ordinances were strictly condemned, and uh, there was a, a constant faction in Geneva which uh, John Calvin called the Libertines, you know, the liberals that didn't hold to right theology and were just uh, rebellious. And the Libertines, led by a guy named... I forget his name, Ami Mills or somebody, the Libertines were just like, this isn't Christianity. You can't punish people by the force of civil government. And so uh, anyway, the the first guy that uh, they uh, executed was a guy named Michael Servetus, who agreed was a heretic, for sure. Not even anywhere close to uh, doctrine. And whose lifestyle wasn't, really righteous either but the point is they still burned him in the city square you know and John Calvin was the one who executed it and so you know the reformation is glorified in protestant circles and we call them you know the reformers but if you really want to be honest about it they were just the protesting murderers and it just depends on how you look at the equation and I say that kind of but I want you to get the feel that, that the, it, when the money and the power comes into equations, we do crazy things, and we make crazy decisions in light of the day of the Lord. These are crazy things these men were doing. And I don't know their destiny or what the end will be, but, you know, like Paul says, their end will be what they deserve, and the Lord will sort it out from there. I just want to encourage that a a realistic and healthy approach to Reformation, because I'm obviously aware of the things I'm saying, and I'm obviously aware of where this is going 20, 30 years down the road. And I just want to gird you on the front end also that if you, you know, it's one thing to to say, The theology is not right, and let's change the theology. It's a completely different thing to say the money and the properties are not right, and let's change all that, because crazy things happen uh, when you do that. D, if the inner motivations of the heart were exposed, I would suggest that the majority of the 30-plus thousand Protestant denominations were started because groups of people desired to meet outside the control of the corporate-based church. Which which obviously after the uh after the enlightenment you know there uh, uh, there wasn't really the opportunity to uh, uh, for persecution by the church just because of the change in culture and expectation and the the change of power from believers to unbelievers, and so the splitting in denominations, though on the outside is generally over specific points of theology. When you get into each specific church split and new denomination, it generally happens arguing over who gets the money and where do we meet and how do we do it. You know what I mean? So uh, page 9, the Protestant Home Fellowship Movement was given breathing room because of the folly of the 30 years war and so the different states uh, and factions in the 30 years war the catholic the catholic states versus the protestant states and it just went on and on killing a third to a half of of uh, the european populace in different areas and after that it was the 30 years war that birthed the enlightenment and all the unbelievers going this is crazy you people are crazy, and all of your beliefs are therefore crazy, and so you had all of just vicious ridicule by Voltaire and Rousseau and and the like, and a change from the early 1700s, the late 1600s, early 1700s, when the when the uh, the uh, what are they called the Enlightenment guys were called uh, the the philosophers or the philosophes. If the philosophes were the persecuted minority to, the, by the end of the 1700s, the philosophes ruled over Europe, and you had things like the French Revolution happening, pressing in on various states and all the revolutions happening uh, thereafter. And uh, I don't know if you we just watched, uh, um, what's the movie, Amazing Grace, And that, you know, in the scene at at the end of Amazing Grace when you have the guy who comes in who's like the radical revolutionary and he had been down in in Paris and France and there's riots in the streets and he comes back in and meets with William Wilberforce and he's like, this is where it's all going. You might as well just get on board, you know. And Wilberforce is like, don't ever mention to me rebellion to my face again. And that kind of breaks their relationship because there's, you know, Wilberforce was being seen as kind of jumping on board with the radical philosophes and, and the, the, uh, the, uh, French revolution. And, and ironically, like he says in that movie, you know, bro, the whole can was opened up by the Americans and the revolution that happened there. And there's riots in the streets in France. And anyway, I don't want to get too much into, sorry. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so during this time, oh, no, it's 1120. How could this have happened? Oh, this is what my love for history does. Um, all right, finish up this movement, move on. Okay, so in context of the Enlightenment, you had German pietism rising up with Spener, and Spener said, look, the Reformation didn't really do anything. Everybody has Bibles in their homes now, but nobody reads them. So he started meeting bi-weekly on Sundays and Wednesdays in his home. And then the other Lutheran pastors went like, what are you doing? You know, And they got together with the city council in Frankfurt and shut it down. And then you know, Franke started pressing it at the University of Halle. Franke was Spiener's main disciple. And then Zinzendorf, who was a disciple of Franke and studied under him and was the godson of Spiener, did the whole thing at Hernhut. And he started organizing as the missionaries went out— organizing bands and societies of bands in which people were discipled in small groups in their homes and then john wesley after seeing the moravians on the boat over on his way over to america he came back you know messed up and went to a moravian meeting on aldersgate street converted went out to hernhut came back because he and zinzendorf didn't get along so well you know and so and i can't do this slow i can't i'm a failure <laughs> i can't do it fast Anyway, so Wesley, he incorporated the bands and societies and classes and circuits that spread throughout the United States during the Second Great Awakening. Later on, the Baptist and and Methodist camp meetings and circuits and small groups kind of transitioned back to the corporate form. But you had it picked up in the holiness movement and, and the revivals of the mid and late 1800s. And then you had the YMCA movement of the late 1800s that spread throughout the campuses in which young groups of men and women met in their homes and in various places. And it was the YMCA movement that birthed the student volunteer movement. Okay, Because most people talk about they're going to see a new student volunteer movement going, and they have no clue that the student volunteer movement was the missions movement of the YMCA, of a, of a home-based fellowship of young adults that had nothing else to live for. They weren't out to get wealth and power and build buildings and everything. And so there was actually something to be set on fire with God's heart for the nations to send out. It's like the, you know, the Chinese church that was saved from, you know, if you've ever seen pictures of the white aristocracy of missions that ruled over the Chinese church and the pictures of the general assemblies of the Chinese missions movement in the early 1900s, it's all white people. You know, And then you had, because of movements like the Plymouth Brethren, the early Plymouth Brethren, that Hudson Taylor had affiliation with the Open Brethren, and he spread the ideas through disciples in the China Inland Mission into China. And so you had the Little Flock Movement under Watchman Nee that really went against the white kind of corporate-based movement in the early 1900s. And then when the persecution came down in the 50s and all the corporate holdings were destroyed, it was that remnant of little flock, Watchman Knees movement that he started meeting in the homes that survived under the persecution. And now you have a whole movement of one to three million house churches in China that now they don't have anything else to live for. Because they don't have wealth and power to run after. And they have a heart for a nation. And so, you I mean, I actually believe that there will be a missions movement out of there. But I don't believe there's going to be a missions movement out of these other places. I mean, just to be realistic about it. There is no, there is no base of people to set on fire because they're so enculturated in seeking wealth and power in this age. Because of the whole form and structure but out of northern india out of central northern africa out of uh out of east asia and thailand and vietnam and china this is ground where people can receive a heart of god for mercy to the nations and saving the lost and can walk it out in truth all right so uh let's take a break there And uh, we'll pick up on uh, the characteristics and form of the church after the break.